life that he gave so many times I will praise you today I lift up my life oh cause you're always the same and my i
Well, good morning, Southview. How are we? All right. Welcome to you all. Glad you're with us today. If you're a guest with us, my name is Brad. I'm the pastor here at Southview, and it's great to have you with us worshiping the Lord together. I want to read some scripture to us before we begin our time. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 
So Hebrews 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. These verses lay out for us how we, how we move forward in the Christian life. You know, one of the things that we really strive to do, one of the things that I want to do in my own life and then help others do as well is, is help put some real practical hands and feet on how do we do this thing? How do we actually live the Christian life? And Hebrews 12 gives us the foundation step one. How do we let go of sins that cling so tightly to us? How do we lay aside all the weight and heavy burden? Those two things describe things that weights or things aren't necessarily sinful, but they just weigh you down. And then, of course, sin which clings so tightly. Those sins that just trip you up especially. How do we do that? How do we let that stuff be aside and run our race with endurance? We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the beginning and the end of the faith. The point is not you. The point is Jesus. The point is not me and my walk with Christ. The point is Jesus. I tell you this all the time. That's why it's called Christianity, not Bradianity. It is not about what I can do, and it's not about what you can do. It's about you constantly looking to Jesus. So I want to pray for us this morning that that's exactly what we'll do. Today, we'll be encouraged to look more and more and more to Jesus his work on our behalf, his sacrifice on the cross, his victorious resurrection, his life now in us, living out through us. This is how we're able to set those weights aside and push those sins aside and run with endurance because we're looking to Jesus, the beginning and end, the start and finish, the author and perfecter of our faith. So let's bow our heads this morning as we begin our time together. And God, we just ask you that's exactly what you'll do. Jesus, we pray that you'll just be made much of. We pray, Jesus, that we will see you for who you are. We pray, Jesus, that we will just run to you. I pray today, Jesus, that we would see you and, and be overwhelmed by you. And we'll stop trying to do things in our own strength, in our own power, and our own ability. But we'll just run after you, Jesus. And as we do that, you are going to change us and make us new. Shape us more into your image. And we can live lives bringing glory and honor to you. Thank you, Lord. Do this in us today, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, let's stand together. Let's worship Christ. Good morning, church. Let's sing of this God who has freed us. Jesus the Christ worthy of all of our praise.
meditate on that truth, church. God says, be still and know that I am God. Just meditate on these truths as we're seeing today.
you, Lord. Praise you. You may be seated, church. Amen. Amen. As we sing praises to this holy God and worship Him, I want us to take a little time before we jump into the Word and spend time praying together. We do this every week, spend a little time in prayer before we get into the Word. We think that's important to set our hearts before God and prepare ourselves for hearing from Him. And then also it's a great teaching opportunity uh, for us just to be able to show what prayer looks like. Uh, and a lot of times we go through um, what's called the Lord's Prayer, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And, and I want to focus this morning for just a quick second on one verse there in the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, he says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As Jesus is teaching us how to pray, he, he makes a point of making sure we understand the importance of what's commonly known uh, in Christian circles as spiritual warfare. Right? The fact that we have an enemy and that he is seeking to harm us. When it says deliver us from evil, some of your translations may rightly translate that as the evil one, Satan himself. There is an enemy of your soul. He hates you and he wants to destroy you. And what I want you to see just for a couple of minutes this morning is the primary way that he seeks to do that. A lot of times we think of big, uh, um, you know, we think of, you know, Satan and Satan's work, right? We think of, you know, things like the exorcist, right? Get heads spinning around and green pea soup flying out and crazy things happening. And, and for sure, he, he does indeed manifest himself in those ways sometimes but but the primary way that satan seeks to bring warfare against us usually is through the people around us in ephesians chapter 6 verse 13 or excuse me verse 12 Talking about this idea of spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. Listen to what he says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. If you have a Bible and you're following along, circle that. And on the side, when it says flesh and blood, write people. For we do not wrestle against people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. One of Satan's greatest schemes is to bring as much chaos into your life as possible and make sure you focus on everyone around you and not him. Can I just encourage you just for a second? Your spouse is not your enemy. The opposing political party is not your enemy. Your boss is not your enemy. Now all of those people may be doing bad things. They may be doing sinful things. They may be sinning against you. But Ephesians 6, 12 lets us know who ultimately truly is our enemy and who ultimately we are truly fighting against. And that is not against the flesh and blood, but against the cosmic forces of evil, against Satan and his minions. So if we can just bow our heads just for a moment, I want to encourage you. Let's just take this a minute and let's pray. And, and I want to encourage you here 
just to take a second just to set your heart before the Lord and ask God to give you fresh eyes to see the people around you for what they really are. People created in the image of God. They may be sinful, they may be sinners, they may do bad things, but they are nonetheless people created in the image of God, people for whom Jesus Christ died so they can be set free from their sin. They're not the enemy. They may be held captive by the enemy, but they themselves are not the enemy. Let's pray today that God gives us fresh eyes to see people for who they are and the real enemy for what he is. And that we would see God as the one who really sets us free. To love people, to pray for people, to care for people, to not see them as the enemy, to not view them in accordance with their sin, but to view them how God views them. His creation, people for whom Jesus died. Take just a second, sit before the Lord. Lord God, I just ask that you would give us fresh eyes to see you for who you really are, us for who we really are, the people around us for what they really are, and our true enemy for what he truly is. I pray, God, that you would protect us from the scheme of the enemy that would seek us to get our eyes focused on those around us and view them as the enemy. I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see people and hearts to love people the way that you see them and the way that you love them. So that now we'll be able to pray for them and not pray against them. We will pray for their deliverance, not for their defeat. We will pray that you would be made much of and glorified in their lives. Because we love you and we want to see you do a great thing in them. Change and empower our prayers. For those around us. We would no longer see them as the enemy. But see them as perhaps captives of the enemy. But not our enemy. And we will pray to see them delivered and set free by you, Jesus, for your glory. Give us fresh eyes to see. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Hey, if you have a Bible, let's find Matthew chapter 1 together, all right? Matthew chapter 1. Uh, so if you've been with us, we're going through a series we call The Story. And the big idea behind this is that we've been seeking to show the one big idea of the Bible, that uh, Jesus Christ is God, come to save and redeem God's people. And that every little piece in the Bible works together to... Build up and hold up and push forth this one big idea. And so we saw that God created, and God created Adam and Eve to love him and worship him and live for him and serve him. But they did not do that, did they? They rebelled. And in falling in that rebellion, they now set all of humanity, including every one of us, in that rebellion against God also. And in the entire rest of the Bible, so, so this rebellion of Adam and Eve happens literally on page 3. 
And then the entire rest of your Bible is about God seeking to save and redeem and rescue his people from that rebellion. And so God tells Adam and Eve, look, there's going to come a seed from you, Eve. There's going to come a son, and this son is going to crush the head of Satan. And then God picks this elderly couple, Abraham and Sarah, who can't have kids, and he miraculously allows them to have a son named Isaac. Isaac has kids who have kids who have kids who have kids. And eventually this becomes known as the people of Israel. Through a series of events, they find themselves trapped in slavery in Egypt. God delivers them out of that slavery, gives them a land, and says, I want you to be my people. I'm going to give you rules to follow so that you can be my people. I'm going to give you sacrifices to make when you don't follow those rules so that you can still remain in my people. I'm going to give you a king that will lead you to love and worship me. Did they do that? No. They kept sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning, which ultimately led to God having to kick them out of the promised land, send them off into exile and captivity, which is where we saw last week. Some people were able to come back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. They kept sacrifices going, but it wasn't the same. And in all of this, they keep waiting for this long-awaited Messiah, this long-awaited Savior, this King that was supposed to come. And so actually the Old Testament goes on and you see them in captivity and some coming back from captivity but still held under the bondage of foreign pagan rulers and kingdoms. It seems like God's promise is not coming to fruition. Has God forgotten his promise? Is God unable to keep his promise? Has God just reneged on the promise? Well, thankfully, the answer to that question is no. And as the Old Testament ends, the very last verses of the Old Testament, Malachi. In Malachi, what we see is God giving his promise again. And in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, what we see is God saying, look, the very next thing is there's going to come a prophet, Elijah. And this prophet is going to turn the hearts of fathers back to their children and children back to their fathers. Going to prepare the way for the Lord. And that is the very last verse in the Old Testament. With that, the Old Testament ends. And then there's 400 years of silence. The intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament is about 400 years of virtual silence of God. They're just waiting. They're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then the very next thing that happens in biblical history is Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, we meet a priest by the name of Zechariah. And Zechariah is in the temple performing his priestly duties. And in Luke chapter 1, he's in there and God comes to him through an angel and says, Zechariah, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have a son. And this son of yours, you're going to name him John. We're going to know him as John the Baptist later. Look what happens in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This son of yours is going to what? Come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Turning the hearts of fathers back to their children, children to their fathers, the, re- the, the rebellious back to the righteousness of God, preparing the way of the Lord. God is doing this. God promised this prophet's going to come. Luke 1 says John is that prophet. And then what does John do? As John grows up in John chapter 1, who's he going to point to as this great savior that's come? Jesus. In John chapter 1, with everyone around him, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. Here he is. The Savior is here. 
The entire Old Testament, the entire Bible comes to this point. A lot of times we think of the Old Testament and the New Testament as these separate things. right? The Old Testament stories and the New Testament stories, we don't see how they come together. It all comes together perfectly. The Old Testament, think of the Old Testament as promises made and the New Testament as promises kept. The Old Testament is a Savior is coming, a Savior is coming, a Savior is coming, a Savior is coming. The New Testament is Jesus is that Savior. Jesus is the one you've been waiting for, hoping for, looking for. Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, Jesus himself says that this is true. Jesus himself says all of the Bible, all of Old Testament history has been pointing to him. In Luke chapter 24... Jesus was crucified, he was buried, he rose from the grave. And after he rose from the grave, he hangs out, he, he, he meets up with a couple of his disciples. They don't see who he is, they don't recognize who he is. He comes up to them and says, guys, what are you talking about? What's happening? And they say, where have you been? Don't you know what's happening? No, fill me in. And they say, well, we had this Jesus And we thought he was going to be the Messiah. We had a lot of hope, but then he died. And and, and now we can't even find his body. And a couple of ladies that we've been hanging out with went to the tomb, and they said an angel came to them and told them that Jesus rose from the grave. We have no idea what's going on. We're totally freaking out here. And Jesus looks at them and says, don't you get it? And in Luke 24, it says that Jesus began with Moses and started unpacking for them everything in the Old Testament, explaining how everything was pointing to him. This whole series that we've been doing, I totally ripped it off from Jesus. Which if you're going to steal from somebody, make it Jesus. Everything we've been doing, Jesus did for his disciples. He started at the beginning and said, this is really about me, and this is really about me, and this is really about me, and this is really about me. I'm God that created you. I'm the seed that was promised to Adam and Eve. I'm the son that was promised to Abraham that was going to bless the nations. I'm the only one that can fulfill the law given to Moses. I'm the true temple of God that allows you to dwell with God forever. I'm the king that comes in the line of David. Everything has been pointing to me. And this is where we find ourselves today. In Matthew chapter 1, we see Jesus. Coming into human history now, he's always been fully pre-existent God. He created everything. But now he steps into human history, coming into the world as our Savior. And in Matthew chapter 1, we see the beginning of the New Testament starting with the genealogy of Jesus. And I'm going to read for you Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. All right? Basically, it's going to feel like I'm reading through the Jerusalem phone book. Okay, And there are a lot of names in here that, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know how to pronounce, I'm going to make it up as I go. But there's a point behind this. The reason this is in here is profoundly significant. God is pointing us to the great truth that Jesus is the one that we've all been looking for. So Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon, who swam upstream. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jerome, Jerome the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elkayim. And Eliakim the father of Azar, and Azar the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad. Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So... All the generations from Abraham to David was 14 generations, were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. I know you're looking for a life verse, you're going to find one in there, I'm sure of it. So, what does this have to do with us? I want to show you three big things. Through this genealogy, point us to Jesus and how everything in the Bible, everything in human history, and everything in your life has been leading you to this point so that you can see Jesus for who he is. All right, so three big things. Big idea number one, Jesus is the promised Savior. Jesus is the promised Savior. It starts in verse 1. If you've got the Bible, you can uh, go back and look at it. Verse 1 of Matthew 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Three times in this passage, Jesus is called the Christ, or the Messiah, or the Anointed One. However, your Bible translates it. And all of that means the same thing. It means Jesus is the one sent from God. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. It says there in verse 1, he's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. Abraham. If you remember, as we've been going through the Old Testament leading up to this point, we were being told through Abraham's going to come a son, through David is going to come a king. And what is happening here in Matthew 1 1, the very first verse in the New Testament, he's intentionally linking it back to everything we've read in the Old. Every promise, every, every um, uh, 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 prophecy, everything that God has set before you is now being fulfilled. It's all pointing to Jesus. Here's why this was huge. During this time, there were actually a lot of people rising up as false saviors, false messiahs. I mean, you just think about it. If... For generations, you've been told that a Savior's going to come, a Savior's going to come, a Savior's going to come, a Savior's going to come. If you were a guy who wanted power and knew that people were for generations being told and ingrained, someone's going to come that you have to give full allegiance to. If you were a guy with nefarious intent, wouldn't you think, ding, ding, ding. I just say I'm that guy. 
and people are going to follow me. And this happened a lot. In fact, as you read through the Gospels, what you see is the enemies of Jesus that killed Jesus, they literally said to one another, let's just kill him. And when he's dead, he'll be like all the others that died and his followers will eventually fall away. All throughout this time, all throughout New Testament history, this intestinal period leading up to Jesus in his life, there were all these fake saviors saying, follow me, live for me, pursue me, give me your money, give me your devotion, give me your allegiance, give me the power, I promise you give it to me and I will save you. And all of them died and weren't able to give what they promised. And here's why this matters for us. In our life, in our world, in our society today, listen to me. There are thousands of things screaming to you. Give me your allegiance and I promise I'll save you. Follow me and I promise it'll be good. We look to a thousand different things to be our saviors. Money and power and sex and relationships and friendships and popularity and notoriety and social media. We look at these thousands of things hoping that it's going to give us fulfillment and joy and peace and salvation. I want you to see the world in terms of salvation. Everything that's screaming at you, every ad on television is about the fact that you're in some kind of hell and this is the Savior to get you out of it. You can't lose weight, buy this pill. You, you, you're struggling with this, purchase that. Everything is screaming at you that I can save you, I can save you, I can save you. Really all the marketing world does is tap into what God has placed inside of you. They try to counterfeit what God has innately put in you. The fact that you know you need a savior and what Matthew 1 is telling you is Jesus is the only one who can do that. What are all the things that you've been looking to to save you? Maybe you didn't think about it in that way. Maybe you wouldn't articulate it in that way. But what are all the things in your life that you hope would save you? This relationship, this job, this school, this friendship, this is going to work. Now it's going to be okay. Now it's going to be all right. And it always fails. Why? Because there is only one promised Savior. Everything else in your life is going to fail you. Everyone else cannot hold up to what you're expecting them to. Only Jesus. Jesus is the promised Savior. Not only that, look at verse 17. This is so cool. Verse 17. So... All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What is that? That feels like a random historical fact that doesn't mean anything to you. That feels like, okay. But it is so cool. I saved the geeky stuff for when it matters, and this is cool. So why is it that it's 14 genera- three 14s, right? 14 generation, a 14 generation, a 14 generation bringing you to Jesus. In your Bibles, uh, the number seven is the number of uh, completion and perfection, right? So now what you have here 
you know, three sets of double sevens. Double seven, double seven, double seven, pointing to Jesus. God is intentionally setting up the genealogy of Jesus around these sets of double sevens because he's saying something. You ready? He's saying as you look throughout the history of Israel, God was perfectly moving in every single bit of it to bring them to this point. Not a single second of Israel history was out of the authority and sovereignty of God. Everything was pointing them to this. Everything was moving to this. All the good times, all the bad times. All the highs, all the lows. All the times where they were faithful and all the times where they were horrifically disobedient. God was working in all of that to bring them to this point. It was all perfect. It was all meaningful. It was all by design. And listen to me. The same is true for you. Everything in your life has been bringing you to this point. Everything in your life has been bringing you here. The good, the bad, the ups, the downs. The times where you were really serious about God and the times where you were praying that he would forget where you were. All of that has been working to this purpose for this point. God has been bringing you here for this. Everything has meant something. Everything has been purposeful. All of it has been by design to point you to him. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, everything in your life has been bringing you to this point today so that you can see Jesus and turn to Jesus. Everything. And if you are a Christian, everything in your life has worked together so that you can point to Jesus and glorify Jesus. Everything has worked together for this. It happened for Israel. It happens for you. God perfectly worked through every single detail of their history. And he works through every single detail of your life as well to bring you to him. Have you turned to him? The second thing you see in this is that Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. As you look through Matthew chapter 1, I want you to notice something really interesting. So in ancient genealogies, think of ancient genealogies sort of like a resume. All right? So if you're in... um, Uh, In your uh, line of work, if you do human relations, if you're responsible for looking over resumes, you know there's a real art to this because you have to determine what's reality and what is fiction, right? What has been a little bloated? What has been massaged? What things did they leave out? What random things did they put in? This is how genealogies work in ancient times. Genealogies were sort of like resumes. They were used to explain to you why this individual was important and why they should be placed in XYZ position. And as you look at genealogies, typically it's just this father begat this son, and then they begat this son, and then they begat this son, and they begat this son. It kind of just goes through that patriarchal line, right? This man, and then this man, and then this man, and then this man, and then this man. But as you read through Matthew chapter 1, Jesus' genealogy, I want you to notice some different things. There are some really bizarre things God intentionally added in here that do not help in pushing forward this idea that Jesus is the Messiah, but it's put in there for a different reason. If you have a Bible, look at verse 
three. You have Judah. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So the only person that matters is Perez. Was Judah begot Perez and Perez begot, right? And so he's the, he's the line. Why did God put in there his brother Zerah and their mom Tamar? Because he on purpose wants you in your mind to go back to that story. It's found in the book of Genesis chapter 38. Judah has a son married to this lady Tamar. Apparently Judah's son is wicked and God kills him. But in Old Testament law, if a brother dies and his wife did not have any kids, then that wife then goes to the next brother and then he has kids with that uh, 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 his brother's wife, and then those kids live on in the line of his deceased brother. Does that make sense? So Tamar goes to the next in line brother, Onan. I will, I will make this as G-rated as possible. You can look at Genesis 38 to get the details. Onan wanted the pleasure without the responsibility. He laid with Tamar, but he did it in such a way where he would not have to worry about, uh, you know, little snot-nosed kids. God hated this and killed him for it. So then there's a third in line. And Judah's like, this is like a black widow. Like two of my sons are dead. I don't think I want to give her number three. So he tells Tamar, go back to your dad's house. Live with your dad. When my next son gets old enough, then I'll let you have him as a husband. So Tamar goes off. Later on down the line, some people come to Tamar and go, hey, you know, your, 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 your father-in-law, Judah, that son is old enough now, and he's not allowing him to marry you. Like, what's going on? So Tamar comes and th- realizes this is going on. So here's what Tamar does. She disguises herself as a prostitute. She goes and sits by a place that she knows Judah's going to come by. Judah's come by, and he looks at her, think, not knowing who she is, thinking she's just some random prostitute, propositions her. She says, well, what are you going to give me? He said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you my belt and I'll give you my staff. Great. So they are intimate with one another. Judah hits the road. Later on, Tamar Tamar becomes pregnant. Later on, someone comes to Judah and says, hey, your girl Tamar is pregnant. She's been unfaithful. Judah says, this isn't right. So he goes to Tamar. says, Tamar, I can't believe this. You were supposed to stay pure for my son, and you did this. I want to know what's going on. And Tamar says, okay, well, um, whoever belongs to this staff, they're the father. She does a total Mori Povich on him, right? Right? She's like, Judah, you are the baby's father. Why is that in the book? That little story does not push the genealogy along. Why is that in the book? To show you even really sinful people were in the genealogy of Jesus. Even really, you keep on going. Verse 6, uh, excuse me, verse 5 mentions Rahab, who is a legitimate prostitute. Verse 5 also mentions Ruth, who is a homeless Gentile woman living off welfare. Verse 6 mentions David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Why does he say that? All that matters is David, Solomon, Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Why does he add that little tag in there about the wife of Uriah? Because he wants you to remember that story. David having an affair with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband to cover it up. 
in all of this, what's happening here? God is showing Jesus came to save even really, really, really bad sinners. Jesus came to save people who were in desperate need. People, Jesus came to save people who were absolutely bent on their own way, in their own life, in their own plans, in their own sin, in their own destruction. They didn't care what happened to anyone else around them. Jesus intentionally adds these in his genealogy, in the word, so that you can read through this and see, he came to save sinners like me. That's the point. It's the point for all of this. Jesus is the promised Messiah who came to save even people like me. It all points to him. And then the third thing that we see in this, as you read through the Gospels, what you find is this. Jesus' salvation looks different than they thought it would. So these Jewish believers, um, these, these Jewish men and women waiting for the promised Messiah, they believed that Messiah was going to come as this warrior king who was going to destroy Rome and set them free. So they were looking for that. right? They, they weren't looking for a murdered homeless carpenter. Right? They were looking for a victorious, mighty warrior king. Now, what happened was they usually went to the Old Testament and they got some things confused with the first coming and the second coming. And Jesus is going to come as a warrior king and destroy his enemies and set up his earthly kingdom. That is going to happen. It just wasn't going to happen then. And so because, listen to this, because they were looking for salvation to be different, they missed Jesus. Because they had a set idea in their mind of what salvation would look like, they totally missed him. And the same is true for us. We have ideas in our mind of what salvation should look like, what salvation really is, who God really is and who I am and what I need. We have our own ideas and our own speculations of what this should look like. And as a result, we miss Jesus altogether. I'll I'll give you a few common ones misunderstandings of salvation. Number one, the gospel is not you're okay. The gospel is not you're okay. In other words, the gospel is not you're basically good, but no one's perfect, so you need a little Jesus sprinkled on top. You're not good. I'm not either. The Bible would say in Ephesians 2, we're dead. We're totally deviant. We're running headlong away from God. You don't need God to make you better. You need God to make you new. You don't need God to clean up your life. You need God to give you a brand new one. You are not okay. You are not okay. And you cannot have Jesus as your Savior until you admit and acknowledge that. The gospel is not God is love. Now, the Bible talks much about the love of God. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Romans would tell us that because of his great love with which he loved us, Jesus came and he died for us. But our world has this really warped definition of what love is. Love is not, biblical love is not just looking at you and allowing you to do whatever you want. The gospel is not that. 
The gospel is you are rebelling against God. And because he loves you, he has to look at you and call you for what you are. A rebel and a sinner. But he came to set you free from that. He came to save you from that. The gospel is not Jesus wants to be your friend. That is not the gospel. Now the Bible does call Jesus a friend of sinners. And he is indeed that. But the only way he becomes your friend is if you first recognize that he is your sacrifice and he is your Lord. He did not come to be your buddy. He came to be your sacrifice because you have sinned against God. And he came to be your Lord because he is God of the universe and you are to submit your entire being to him. And the gospel is not be good. Christianity is not, here are some rules, obey these rules so that you can be a better person. That is not Christianity. Christianity is you can't be good. My best deeds are filthy rags in the eyes of God. I can't do it. I need a Savior. So as you keep going through the Gospels, what you see is Jesus grows, becomes man. And he teaches And he heals and he does miracles. And all of these things are pointing to the fact that he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God. He is the promised one. And then he dies on the cross. And he dies on the cross because you and I deserve that. He lived a sinless and perfect life that we never could live. And then he died in our place because we deserve to die. And he victoriously rose again to show that he is God in flesh. He is your Savior. He's the only one who can make you new. And as we see the story of Jesus, and we see how the story of Jesus fits in with the story of the whole Bible, the point of this is not just for you to know facts about Jesus and know the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus demands a response. The story of Jesus demands that you decide today. Am I going to give my life to him and I'm going to let him make me new and I'm going to live for him and his glory or am I going to turn from him and live for myself? The story of Jesus demands this. You cannot hear who Christ is. You cannot hear the story of Jesus Christ and remain ambivalent to it. Ambivalence is rebellion. Will you turn today? Will you turn today and see Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for me as our band comes up. And, And I want you to think about this. Again, everything weaves together perfectly. So back in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God set Adam and Eve before him. said, I want you to live your life serving me. I want you to live your life pursuing me. I want you to live your life trusting me for everything. And they had a choice. Right? You had these true um, opportunities. Right? You had the, 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 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can either trust God and live for his glory and let him be the one who provides everything for you or you can pursue it yourself. And we know what they did. They pursued it themselves. 
They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that they could be wise in their own eyes and they can make their own path and they can do their own way. And I want you to understand the same opportunity, the same crossroads is set before you here today. Jesus says, you can either turn to me, confess your sin to me, trust me as your Savior, let me make you new, and live your life in total and complete obedience to me. Or you can go your own way. You can choose your own path. You can try to be wise in your own eyes. You can try to make up your own rules. But one leads to life and the other leads to death. And I want you to hear there is no middle road. There is no third option. There are only two set before us. As we see the story of Jesus, as we see the entire Bible coming up to this crescendo, everything is pointing to this, Jesus Christ, who he is. Everything is pointing to this because everything in your life has been pointing to this. Do you see Jesus for who he is? And today, do you turn to him? You have this opportunity today. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the promised Savior. And he came to save sinners like you. But you cannot do it in your own way, in your own plans, in your own agenda, in what you think salvation should look like. You don't get a vote. Either you totally and completely Fall on your face and surrender everything to Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. Or you go your own way and take all the consequences on your own head. Those are the only two options. If today you see Jesus for who he is, God coming to earth, dying for your sin, being buried, rising again, and you desire to trust him to take away your sins as your sacrifice and to be your Lord. Today, just simply call out to him and tell him that. Say, Jesus, I see you for who you are. You died for me. You rose again. Take away my sin. Make me new. I give my life to you. pray, God, today that as we worship you, as we call out to you, as we sing, as we pray, I ask you, Lord God, that you would stir deeply in our hearts. I pray, God, that we would turn to you. I pray, God, for those in the room today that need to trust you as Savior and as Lord exactly what they do. I pray, God, that they would see everything in their life has been pointing them to this moment. Everything in their life has been pointing them to you. I pray you will open up the eyes of their heart to see that and turn to you for your glory. Thank you, Jesus. Do this in us today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Stand with us, guys. As we sing, if you'd like to come forward and pray, you can. If you'd like to grab someone to pray with you or talk with you, you can do that. I'll be up front. My wife will be up front. If you'd like someone to talk with, we, we've been more than happy to do that with you. But let's take some time this morning.
worshiping Jesus as the one everything in history, in the Bible, in your life has been pointing us to. But see him as the greatest and most glorious treasure in the universe. Everything has been pointing you to him. So turn to him. Let him make you new. Let's sing.
have a seat for me, if you will, as we wrap up our time together. Uh, if you'd like to discuss anything, you want to walk through any questions that you might have, we'll be up front. We'd love to do that with you. But again, if you're here today and you're a guest, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. We'd love to connect with you. Uh, best way you can do that is to grab your cell phone and text the word CONNECT to our number, 910-424-1298. That's the best way to get plugged in with us and what all is going on here at Southview. But for everyone, we've got three big announcements we want everyone to know. What's going on around here? Uh, number one is this. We are collecting school supplies. Uh, we've been doing that for a couple of weeks now. We're going to keep doing it for a little while. Um, as you walk out either door, you're going to see some buckets where you can drop in school supplies. We're collecting all of that to be able to put some school supplies backpacks together for students uh, here in our neighborhood who are in need. We want to provide for them and minister to them and their families. And you can help us do that by providing some of those resources. Second is this, our men's retreat in October. Um, we need to, to uh, pay, pay in full if you're still planning on going. Um, uh, we said August 1, that's I believe tomorrow. Uh, so um, so you've, you've got about 24 hours. So if you need any help with that, any assistance, reach out to us and let us know. Um, we want uh, you to go. We want you to go and be a part of this. But uh, don't forget to uh, make sure you are paid up in full and ready. Uh, and then last announcement is this. Um, I just want to thank you for your financial giving. Uh, thank you for your generosity, especially through the summer. Uh, churches are weird. We have like ups and downs in giving. You can kind of chart that. Um, July is, is stereotypically kind of a lull, right? Because everybody's on vacation and you're going and doing stuff. And um, attendance is off because everybody's traveling. Uh, but your giving has just been phenomenal through the summer months. I just want to thank you for that. Thank you for your generosity there. You can uh, give online through the app, uh, Southview Baptist Church app, or the giving boxes, whatever works best for you. But I just want to say thank you for that. You've been so gracious and generous with your giving. And praise God for that and praise God for you. We love you so much. All right, guys. Well, I'm going to pray for us. And let us be done, all right? Lord, we just thank you. We thank you, God, that you work all things together. All things together to ultimately point us to Jesus. All of history is really just his story. It's all about Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. It all goes back to Jesus. Everything in our lives has been pointing us and leading us to Jesus. I pray, God, that we would see you as the center of everything. All things come from you, flow back through you, are all for to you, for your glory. I pray, God, that we would center our lives on you as the greatest treasure of the universe. Everything points to you and is for your glory, including us and our lives. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. God bless you guys. I love you so much. Have a great week.